0: Now, I all want you to imagine right now that you're in the 1300s and that you're at the north coast of Australia near the Darwin region. And then imagine that there are two indigenous Australian men by the shore and they are from the Larrakia Nation. And it's just a normal day for them until they see a boat coming from the distance. I'm going to reenact this in English because I, I don't understand the local language, but you get where I'm coming from. Okay. <clears throat> Hey mate, yeah what, did you see that boat coming over? Yeah I do bro. Who do you think that is? Those Maccasons? Oh yeah I think so. Hey, that person looks weird. Yeah why? He's really yellow. You think he's an alien? I don't know. Let's go say hi to him. Hey hey, mate, how's it going? Shema? Uh, hello? Shema? But i think he's an alien he, he doesn't understand our language okay let i'll try and explain it to him we are from the larrakia nation What's he saying? I don't know man. He's so yellow. Okay, this is getting weird man. Like firstly his clothes are a bit weird. He why is his hair tied up like that? And he's, he's so bloody yellow. And he's speaking. Oh, he's got to be an alien. Oh, uh, well, shall we introduce him back to our wives? <laughs> yeah, I was just. So, the reason why I reenacted that is if you notice, there was a Chinese guy who'd come off that boat and had met these two indigenous Australian men of the Larrakia Nation. Now, the reason I did this reenactment is because this episode is focused on a Chinese explorer who who is real, that allegedly may have visited Australia in the 1300s. Wait, what? Happy New Year, everyone. Welcome back. 2023 is going to be another exciting year of bamboo history content. For those of you who are listening for the first time, the Bamboo History podcast focuses on Chinese and East Asian history. If you like this type of content, please subscribe to my podcast, and also check out and follow my Instagram, at Bamboo History Podcast. Alright, now let's get straight in to the first episode of 2023. Today's episode is special, because it relates to Australia, where I'm from. For those of you who don't know, Australia's been inhabited by Indigenous Australians for many, many years, and it was only discovered by Europeans recently. Recently, like... In the 1600s, the first documented landing in Australia was documented by a Dutch explorer named Willem Janszoon. apologies if I haven't pronounced that correctly, who landed in Cape York in present-day Queensland. But it was really interesting that the other day I was online on a Chinese website, mind you, and I read that a Chinese explorer had apparently visited Australia in the 1300s 300 years before Willem, the Dutch explorer, found Australia. That Chinese explorer's name was Wang da Yuan spelt W-A-N-G-D-A-Y-U-A-N. And it was the first time that I heard about it, that a Chinese person had discovered Australia, you know, in the 1300s. And my first instinct was that it was most likely untrue. I mean, it came from a Chinese blog, so not necessarily... 100% accurate. But I was still curious, because I knew that Wang Yuan was an ancient Chinese explorer. So did he discover Australia in the 1300s? Is this fact or fiction? Let's find out, shall we? Brrr. Compared with Europeans, there aren't a whole lot of Chinese maritime explorers back in ancient times. And when one does come to mind, it's usually the famous Zheng He. Z-H-E-N-G-H-E. Unlike Zheng He, who's been touted as one of the most famous Chinese maritime explorers, Wang Dayuan, on the other hand, is not as well known, and there aren't that many records that we can use to study about this explorer. So let's look at what we know about Wang Dayuan. We know that Wang Dayuan was born in the year 1311 in the city of Nanchang in southern China. Nanchang spelt N-A-N-C-H-A-N-G. He was born during the Yuan dynasty, Yuan spelt Y-U-A-N. For those of you who don't know, the Yuan dynasty was a period of time where China was ruled by the Mongols. We know that as a young kid, Wang Da Yuan really wanted to get out there and travel, and just explore and see as many things as possible. He was basically the dora of the explorer in ancient China. So as a young man, Wang Da travelled from Nanchang, which is a landlocked city, to the city of Quanzhou, spelt Q-U-A-N-Z-H-O-U, which is still around today, and it's a coastal city in the southeastern part of China, in the Fujian province. Today, Quanzhou is still a relatively famous city, and it's a good place to visit. But back in the Yuan dynasty in the 1300s, Quanzhou was a bustling trading port and an international city with people from many different places of the world living there and visiting there to trade, to do business, and you know, just to see the sights. We have to look at the context back then in that Mongolian Yuan dynasty was a multi ethnic empire. It was part of the broader Mongol empire that spanned from East Asia, you know, from Korea to China, all the way to Europe. So it connected many different cultures and different kingdoms together, and because of that, trade, international contact was very very frequent, and that was centred in particular in these coastal city ports in China. So Wang Yuan had hit the jackpot. He knew that being in Quanzhou as a young man, he would, have a, he would have a prime opportunity to travel and see the world like he had always wanted to do, since he was a child. Wang Dayuan from the city of Quanzhou went on two voyages in total, and the difference between him and Zheng He, that famous explorer that travelled in the 1400s, 100 years after Wang Dayuan, was that Wang Dayuan travelled as a tourist. He would hop on on a merchant ship, sail somewhere, you know, stay there for a few days or a few weeks, or even a few months, then he'd hop onto another merchant ship or another ship that was travelling elsewhere and he travelled travel like that, literally hitchhiking by the sea. Zheng He, on the other hand, travelled under permission with the government, and travelled with a proper fleet of ships. So it's a lot different. Zheng He's travels is a lot more larger-scaled and a lot more official, whereas Wang Da Yuan's voyages 100 years before Zheng He was more as a tourist or a traveller just by himself, travelling the seas. So the first voyage Wang Da Yuan went on was from the year 1330, where he sailed from Quanzhou in southern China, and it took him five years before he returned back to China. And then his second voyage was two years after he returned back from China from the first one, and he departed in the year 1337, and the second voyage took two years. In these two voyages, he sailed down to Southeast Asia first, then through the Strait of Malacca, which is that narrow body of sea between the island of Sumatra in Indonesia and present-day Malaysia and Singapore and then from the Strait of Malacca, he'd sailed to the Indian subcontinent, and then onto the Middle East and even the East African coast. So he was well-travelled by sea in the known world at the time. After Wang Daoyuan came back to China from his voyages, he recorded all the places he'd gone to in a book called the Zhi Lue, spelt D-A-O-Y-I-Z-H-I-L-U-E, and it's known in English as, quote, a brief account of island barbarians." End quote. And the book was published in the year 1349 as part of a broader travel magazine of sorts that was circulating in the ancient Yuan dynasty at the time. Dao Yi Lue is actually a condensed version of his original account Dao Yi Zhi, which unfortunately has been lost in time. So Dao Yi Lue is the only text that we can look at to refer to Wang da Yuan's travels and where he'd been to. I actually bought the book Dao Yi Lue, and my goodness, it's a hard read, because he writes… obviously back in the 1300s, they were using Middle Chinese, Medieval Chinese, and whilst I could read the characters, the meanings of these characters are completely different from present-day Chinese, and it, it was a nightmare to finish. In the book Dao Yi Lue, Wang Yuan talks about the places he visits in both voyages, Although it's not really clear on the order in which he visits these places. So for example, he might say, I went to Palembang, Sumatra. But then his next account would be like, I went to India, which is like crazy because there's these other places in between that he also writes in his book, but he writes it later on in the book. So it's kind of out of whack. So we don't really know from the text, judging by the text, the order in which he visits these countries or places, but what we do know is those places that he visits because he writes them in his book. Some of the places that he visits are Singapore, Malaysia, Thailand, India, a lot of islands in Indonesia, including Java, Sumatra, and the Banda Islands. He also visits Pakistan, Sri Lanka, and parts of, I think, Iran and the East African coast, like Somalia, and I think even Tanzania. So with all these places he visits, Wang Yuan documents these places in great detail actually, such as physical geography, what the people look like and wear, what they eat, and what the land produces. Sometimes he also mentions extra things of that place, like local customs, and even relationships that these countries have with China, where he's from. For example, I have a translation of his description of an interesting burial tradition from the Mindoro Island of the Philippines, which in the Yi Zhilue he's named as Ma Yi, M-A-Y-I. Mindoro Island is spelt M-I-N-D-O-R-O. So he mentions that, when when a man dies in Ma Yi, the Mindoro Islands, quote, When any woman is burying her husband, she shaves her hair and fasts for seven days lying beside her dead husband. Most of them nearly die. If after seven days they are not dead, their relatives urge them to eat. Should they get quite well, they cherish their chastity by not marrying again during their whole lives. There are some even who, when the body of their dead husband is burning, get into the funeral pyre and die. At the burial of a great chief, two or three thousand Male or female slaves are put to death for burying with him." End quote. I think this is an interesting tradition that Wang Yuan has documented in the Daoyi Zhilue. And I mean, if lying next to your dead husband for seven days and not eating is not a test of true love, I don't know what is. Also before I move on, I'd like to credit Gregorio Zaidi and his book Documentary Sources of Philippine History for providing us with this English translation. I tried to translate it myself from the original text, but it was just too hard. I mean, you know, it's all in classical Chinese, and whilst I understand it roughly, it's hard for me to do a proper English translation of that entire text. So uh, yeah, thanks a lot Gregorio. In addition, Wang Dayuan occasionally makes other interesting observations as well. Another example, Bin Tonglong, which is an ancient city called Pan Duranga in southern Vietnam, Wang notes that the king rides something that is, in quotes, either an elephant or a horse and carries a red umbrella. Another example is that he visits a place called Long Yaman, or Dragon's Teeth Gate, which is now in modern-day Singapore. Here, Wang Da Yuan notes, and he warns travellers to be careful of pirates. He states that ships heading west into the Indian Ocean will have no issues. As in, if you come sort of down from the east and then pass Singapore and head west, no issues. But if you return through Singapore and go east, then be careful when you pass through the Dragon's Teeth Gate, Longyamen, Yaman, because you'll probably, because he says, you'll be met with two to 300 pirate ships. And if you meet them, be careful, because there's been instances where pirate ships have come taking everything off that ship, and sometimes even taking your life. So yeah, listen to the Sea Police, Wang Da Yuan. My opinion of the Dao Yi Zhilue book is that it offers great insight into the world of Southeast Asia, Indian subcontinent, Middle East, and so on in the 1300s. Great insight. Unfortunately, because it's not the full text, remember, it's a condensed version of his bigger text, Dao Yi That other portion it's been lost in time, so we actually don't really know anything else other than what he's written in this text. Another thing that I'd like to criticize is that Wang Da Yuan only just lists... He's very mechanical. He just sort of says, where, where I've been, what it's like, the place, what the people, how they dress, blah, blah, blah. But he doesn't really talk about himself. He doesn't talk about like what his own experiences are, You know, what he faced, the people... That he communicated with personally, how he felt when he was in these places. I mean, as a Chinese man traveling by yourself in the 1300s, that would have been oh, I don't know. That would have been quite confronting. Like if you go to places like East Africa, they probably barely have even seen a Chinese guy. Like I wonder how he would have felt. So I think like it doesn't the Douyutu really doesn't have those types of elements, which is. I mean, for me it's disappointing, but obviously, for a text back then, it's still very great. It also doesn't set out any chronologies, you know, as I mentioned earlier, the dates of when he went there, the order of which he visits these places, and so it actually makes determining where the places he's been to difficult. Because A, the places that he names in the text are the ancient names, so it takes it's taken a lot of effort from historians to decipher where these places actually are. And he doesn't map out these places as well, so it's even, it makes us even harder to determine where he's gone. And onto to the point of not mapping out places, it leads us to the ultimate question, and probably what you're all dying to hear. Did Wang Da Yuan, the Chinese explorer from the 1300s, visit Australia in one of his two voyages? Drum roll! I don't know. <laughs> Like, honestly, it's inconclusive, I think. You see, the Dao Yi Zhulue does not make it easy, because all the places are ancient names, and some haven't even been properly identified, just speculations from historians as to where these places could be. However, there are two locations mentioned by Wang Da Yuan in the Dao Yi Zhulue text, who Chinese historians have thought could be Australia. These two places are, in his text, 罗波斯, L-O-U-P-O-S-I, and Manali, M-A-N-A-L-I. So why are these two places, Si and Manali thought to be Australia by Chinese historians? In order to decipher that, let's look at what Wang Da Yuan writes about these two places, shall we? Let's start off with 罗泡思, and bear in mind, this is my own translation this time. So it's not 100% accurate, but it will roughly show what the text is trying to convey. Alright. So with 罗泡思, Wang Da describes the land of 罗泡思 as Linhai, Which means there's lots of weirdly shaped mountain peaks, like a horse's gallop, with the location of the land facing the sea. I mean, I'm not 100% sure about the weirdly-shaped mountain peaks, but I do know that, if the land's facing the sea, then it definitely could be Australia, because Australia's an island. He also describes the people of Lo si, and if you know Australia, back in the 1300s, only indigenous Australians inhabited Australia at the time. So with that in mind, this is the description. The people are described as Which means that these people, they don't weave or wear clothes, and use bird feathers to cover their skin. They don't cook their food, and eat their birds and animals raw, and they live in nests. Now, Indigenous Australians lived a hunter gatherer lifestyle, and based on this description, such as not wearing clothes and not cooking their food, it does, it is similar to the Indigenous Australian way of life back then. But the issue is, you can also say the same for tribes that are in other countries as well, such as, you know, in Papua New Guinea, or even in the Nicobar Islands or East Africa, which is what other historians have thought Lopus may be as well. Now, this one is interesting, and I think this is actually probably if we wanted to say that 羅波斯 is Australia, this is probably the one that most accurately describes it. He describes the size of 羅波斯, describing the land as 尋個千里, 尚有凡數之書。Now what this means in English is that the land covers thousands of miles with distinct climates. And this alludes to the fact that Wang Da Yuan is saying that Luo is a very large piece of land with different climate zones. And that is quite accurate of Australia. I mean, Australia is its own continent because it's such a large piece of land and it's such a large island. And it does have different climate zones. You go to Darwin and it's so bloody humid, but if you go down to Tasmania, it's freezing cold. So, so this description is actually quite accurate. I mean, other historians have said that it's the Nicobar Islands, well, not true. They're not that big. And the east coast of Africa, I mean, it's not technically an island. So, you know, Luopozi could be Australia, based on that description. But the other descriptions are quite vague. So, they're not that conclusive. I mean, if, if only he had like a, on a DSLR camera or something, he could have taken a photo and we'd be like, oh yeah, that's Australia, man. That's Australia, mate. Anyway. Now, let's look at the land of Ma the second place in the Dao Yi zhi Lue, which Chinese historians have thought, is Australia. Wang Da Yuan describes Ma as, the land first off, as Now what that means in English is that Ma is a location southeast of Mi Li, And it's the final island of Yuanjiao. It's got thousands of nan trees, and it's got land surrounded by water. Now historians have said that back in Quanzhou in the 1300s, they referred to a piece of land down south as a final island, basically the final piece of land before the depths of the earth, which they named Juedao. And that last piece of land is Australia because it's the last piece of land before you get down to Antarctica and the South Pole. So they're saying that that's a reason why Manali could be Australia. There's also the description of the Nan trees. Now, these Nan trees are thought to have been a flame tree endemic to the east coast of Australia. In scientific terms, it's called Brachychiton acerifolius. Um, okay, I'll I'll spell it out as well. It's, um It's... Spelt B-R-A-C-H-Y-C-H-I-T-O-N, first word, and then A-C-E-R-I-F-O-L-I-U-S, second word. Yeah, it's a long word, bloody scientific names. Anyway, and then there's the description of the which means water everywhere, which the historians are saying refers to a large swampy land east of Darwin in the Northern Territory, which is, I mean, honestly, there could be swamps. There's swamps in a lot of places in the world. Uh, Wang Da Yuan also refers to a heavenly crane in the land of Manali, which in Chinese he calls Xianhe. Historians think that this heavenly crane is the Broga, which is a native animal that kind of looks like a crane, but not really. And the Broga is an animal that's native to Australia and New Guinea. And then lastly, for the land of Manali, Wang Da Yuan is saying that the land of Manali is the final island of Yuanjiao. Now, Yuanjiao historians have speculated is a misspelling of the word Kunjiao, Kunjiao spelled K U N J I A O. It's actually degree measurement on the Chinese compass, which is roughly a southwesterly direction. Now, if you sail from Chenzhou in southeastern China and you go sort of southwest, you will eventually hit Australia. Although I've looked at the map and Australia's kind of southeast to China, so I'm also not really convinced personally that that they are referring to Australia. Now, does my explanation of 罗泡斯 and Manali sound convincing to you that this may be Australia? Well, there's also a lot to indicate that it's probably not even Australia at all. I mean for 罗泡斯, it's completely inconclusive. Other historians claim that 罗泡斯 isn't in northern Australia, but rather it's in Somalia, or even the Nicobar Islands in the Indian Ocean, which they say the description of 罗泼斯 matches what's over at those places as well. And with Manali one thing that they mention in the description actually conclusively points out that it isn't Australia that they're talking about. Because in the description, it says that Manali in Chinese, Chan 地铁駛 in, in English means the land produces camels, I'm Australian, and if you're not from Australia, I can tell you that camels are not native to Australia, and they're not an Australian animal. And the first records of camels being in Australia were them being introduced in the 19th century, almost 600 years after Wang Da Yuan supposedly visited Australia. So, in my opinion, I think it's inconclusive. Until there's physical archaeological evidence that proves the existence of a Chinese presence in Australia, back in the day. We can't actually say that Wang Da Yuan visited Australia. I mean, just because we can allude to the fact that they are Australian features based on his descriptions, that doesn't mean he was talking about Australia. There are other parts of the world which probably has features similar to Australia at that time. We do know for certain, however, that Wang Da definitely visited a place which he named in his text, Di Wen and one is the Chinese translation of the island of Timor. The island of Timor, which presently contains the countries of Indonesia and East Timor, is very, very close to Australia. So if he visited Timor, then it is quite possible that he may have visited Australia as well. But if it's inconclusive, we just can't say he went there. We can't rely on some Chinese blogger on the internet to go, oh, I... Just because they said he went to Australia, he visited Australia, nah mate, unless there's actual proper conclusive evidence, it's a myth. No bueno, fictitious. Also, something I want to talk about before I wrap up is that, even though a Chinese person might not have visited Australia back in those times, there has been an Asian presence in Northern Australia. For example, the Makassans, a group of people from Indonesia, have been trading with indigenous Australians of the Northern Territory for many years before the Europeans arrived. I think that's pretty cool. Okay, so just to conclude, Wang da Yuan died in the year 1350, a year after his book Dao Yi Zhilue was published in the year 1349, and he left behind a legacy of a young man whose desire to travel took him to many different countries and regions of the 1300s world at the time. The Daoyi Zhilue is a key resource into discovering the known world in the eyes of the Chinese during the medieval times. And no, we can now say that it's highly unlikely that Wang Dayuan ever visited Australia, but who knows, right? I'd like to think, and a part of me wishes it was true, because like like, let's imagine a Chinese guy from the 1300s gets off a boat in this weird land that he's never been to before meets these people he's never seen before in his life these indigenous Australians sees all these like weird Australian animals he's never seen before and you know like he's probably like wow what the hell is going on where am I and then the, the indigenous Australians seem like what is this this yellow person coming is, is this an alien like that would have been so cool like a part of me wishes that that happened that a chinese guy came to australia met some indigenous australians talked to tried to talk to them at least and you know played with a played with a kangaroo I, I, that'd be pretty cool i reckon but yeah if he but yeah i don't think it's true so yeah that brings an end to the episode about wang da yuan and his sea travels in the 14th century the 1300s I hope you all enjoyed this episode. If you did, please subscribe to my podcast and also follow my Instagram at Bamboo Podcast. Remember to also spread the word of my podcast to anyone that you know, especially to people who enjoy history and, you know, Chinese and East Asian history. I'd really appreciate your help, my bamboo historians. And lastly, if you have any comments, topic suggestions, or just want to have a chat to me, reach out to me by DMing me on Instagram or sending me an email. Details will be in the description box below. Alright, it's time to set sail now. Get it? Thanks everyone for tuning in. Wishing everyone the best for 2023. I'm back for the year. Enjoy the rest of your day and evening, and I'll see you all next time on the Bamboo History Podcast. Bye for now.